Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today I will be talking about suicide from a sociological perspective with Dr. Jason Manning. He is an associate professor of sociology at West Virginia University. His work focuses primarily on conflict and social control, including various means of expressing grievances, handling disputes, and punishing offenses. Within this area, he specializes in violent conflict, particularly in self-destructive forms of violence, such as protest suicide, homicide suicide, and suicide terrorism. Dr. Manning, thank you a lot for coming on the show. Thank you, Ricardo. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so since we're going to talk about suicide today, I thought that the best question to start off with would be, uh, from a sociological perspective, what is the definition of suicide that you use? The definition that I use is the self-infliction of lethal violence. And this is a definition where every part of it is variable. So something can be more or less suicidal, the way I study it. So I, I use the term very broadly to refer to cases where people kill themselves, as well as cases where they survive their attempts. And some of my ideas probably stretch even farther to apply to lesser degrees of self-destruction, like uh, hunger strikes or self-harm and cutting and things like that. Now, there's a lot of argument in the literature on suicide about whether you count all these things as being the same. My idea is that they're the same family, broadly speaking, but I focus on the lethal end, the and likely to lead to self-destruction, to, to death. <laughs> yes, because from a sociological perspective, I would guess that uh, when you want to study suicide, you, you are very interested in knowing what are the social repercussions that it might have, correct? That's one factor, yeah. yeah. The repercussions it has and the things that, the social conditions that lead to it as well. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And uh, exactly because you said that, what are the reasons why people commit, commit suicide from a sociological perspective? Mm. Well, we can identify a couple common ones. The one probably most people would think of when they think of the topic would be a sort of escape. People want to get away from suffering or from a bad situation or even from in the court like of a, an interpersonal conflict they might want to escape from an enemy so that's a common reason for it another would be uh, to get back at someone so you often see a element of aggression or vengeance in suicides not in all of them but in some proportion of cases somebody say his his girlfriend has left him and he might go shoot himself on her front porch and leave a note saying, you drove me to this, and I hope you feel guilty the rest of your life. Or you have cases where people are protesting injustice, uh, lighting themselves on fire in protest, that sort of thing. So that's one class of, of reasons, is uh, things I would call social control, conflict behaviors, ways of either protesting or punishing what the perpetrator sees as wrongdoing. And you also have some other types, and they might be more or less common in any particular society. Uh, altruism is one. 
Sometimes people kill themselves to help others, to spare them from something. A common pattern you see in a lot of societies is when old age comes and people don't want to, as they get elderly and infirm, they don't want to be dependent on their children or their family members to take care of them. And they might kill themselves to relieve others of this responsibility. And some cultures, it's institutionalized and it's expected. And everybody agrees, yes, you reach a certain age and you should do this to be nice to your family and they'll help you do it. The Inuit peoples of the Arctic are one example where it's well-known as an institution. And you also get some that we might say are for almost ritualistic purposes. Um, in certain times and places, it might be the custom, say, when a high-ranking person dies, like in, in a feudal society, like a lord, uh, in, in feudal Japan, like the samurai or their, their lords, the daimyo, or in traditional China, one of the emperors has been like that. When someone like that dies, it might be expected that, well, your servants, your retainers, your wives and concubines, they're going to go with you. And so they're expected to kill themselves in an act of displaying reverence and honor for the departed. So that's just some of the reasons. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very interesting. And I've read some of the articles you wrote on suicide, and in some of them you refer to uh, situations where suicide can be used as a form of social control. So mm -hmm. how, how does that happen? And can you give us perhaps some illustrative examples of that? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, are you familiar? If you've read my articles, you probably know how I define social control. But for your listeners, social control in my area of sociology it refers to any way we define and respond to deviance. So any way we treat other people's behavior as somehow wrong or, un, you know, inappropriate, crazy, criminal sin, something like that. And it can take a lot of forms, right? We, we all do this every single day. Whenever we get annoyed at somebody or mad at somebody or pass judgment on them, we gossip, we criticize, maybe we just roll our eyes, that kind of thing. But sometimes you get much more dramatic examples, calls to the police, lawsuits, vengeance killings, uh, protest demonstrations. And so when I began studying suicide, I, be, I was influenced by the sociology of conflict and social control uh, developed by Donald Black and his students. And so I was looking for ways suicide could be a tactic of social control, could be a way of responding to deviance or expressing a grievance. And there are several ways, and they've been recognized before me in the literature. So in some societies you see it's an almost institutionalized thing. It's a cultural norm that if you want to get back at somebody, there are certain ways of killing yourself that will cause trouble for them. So in some societies, uh, say like in Papua New Guinea, if a woman is abused by her husband, she knows that if she goes and kills herself in a public place, like hangs herself from a tree near a well-traveled path and, and leaves a note and sends a message identifying who drove her to it and you know, fulfills some other cultural steps, everyone will treat her suicide as a murder. She was murdered by her husband because he drove her to it. And they'll punish him. They might just demand compensation, which is a way murder is often handled in these societies. You know, you pay some pigs to 
equal the life of the person you killed. Or they might take blood vengeance. In some cases, they do both. You'll have a guy pay compensation, and then his wife's family kills him anyway for driving her to suicide. So that's one scenario. You get these kinds of third-party sanctions where people can understand that their own death will motivate those they leave behind to punish the person responsible. In other societies, it might be a crime. It might be the state that punishes someone for driving another person to suicide. You had that in China during the period of the Qing or Qing, depending how you want to anglicize it, dynasty. It was a crime to drive someone to suicide. So if you identified someone as the cause, you would get them in trouble with the law. And so some people, naturally, that would factor into their decision to kill themselves. You also get things like psychological effects, inflicting guilt on another person. And that's one thing I found in my own research on U.S. cases. And again, it's not the majority of cases. Most people who kill themselves don't seem to want to do this to their loved ones they leave behind. A lot of them even underestimate the impact their death will have because you know they're depressed, they think, oh, no one cares, uh, this is for the best, and that sort of thing. But there's a minority of people who seem to want to inflict the maximum amount of suffering with their death they can. And so they, they leave notes blaming other people, they kill themselves in places where the other person will find them and be horrified by it, and that sort of thing. So you have this class of, of punitive mechanisms people might use against people who they think have wronged them. You also get uh, suicide as a kind of punishment, or not punishment, protest, uh, an appeal, like an attempted suicide can have this effect. People might, you know, someone embroiled in a, a conflict with a spouse might take an overdose of pills that might kill them, might not kill them, and if they survive, it might make the spouse realize, oh, I've, I've done wrong, I need to treat my spouse better or exceed to their demands. So a lot of attempted suicide is a kind of protest or appeal function. But the most dramatic and obvious cases in history are political protest suicides. And you, know, you can probably think of some of the famous examples. The Buddhist monk in 1963 who burned himself alive to protest Buddhist repression in Vietnam, or more recently Tibetans who burned themselves to protest China and many other examples. But the sort of public burning of the self as a way to uh, dramatize the cause and the grievance, convince others that you know, we're very serious, this is a very serious offense that I'm willing to die for, and to attract sympathy. You know, people realize, oh, wow, look at these people suffering, they're burning, it must be really bad what they're going through, and maybe they decide to side with them. And that's how you get popular support behind the cause. So these are some of the ways in which self-destructive behavior can be a kind of social control or, or conflict management, a way of reacting to an adversary and from the you know, point of view of the perpetrator seeking justice. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's interesting and you refer to some very interesting cases that have political ends, let's say, like for example the Tibetan monks or the Vietnamese monks that mm -hmm. self-immolate Right. And uh, it's interesting because I was going to ask you about that, but I remember the um, interview I had with Dr. Bradley Campbell, where we talked about the book you were also a co-author of, The Rise of Victimhood Culture. And I, and I wanted to ask you if you think that uh, suicide as a form of political protest or in order to try to mobilize people 
toward a political end could be used, and I don't know if it has already been used in that form, um, um, by people that espouse uh, or that are part of a victimhood culture? Interesting question. My, my thought on that is that while some of the same logic is at work in protest suicide as in the kinds of phenomena on, say, college campuses that we focus on as victimhood culture, there's a logic of advertising and dramatizing one's oppression or victimization and trying to attract sympathy from third parties as, as a main way of handling the conflict. So there's a similarity in the logic of this and probably to some extent in the social conditions that lead to it. Like you need to have uh, availability of third parties in a location where it's possible that they will take your side. But I really don't think you're going to see much of anything like self-immolation in the settings like college campuses in, in the U.S. that we identify as centers of victimhood culture. And part of it is that victimhood culture, as we define it, seems to be most developed where inequality is relatively low. Man, not, not perfect equality, which is hard to find anywhere, but where it's relatively low in, in what we'd call free societies without strict class or caste systems. And the conflicts often they, they ha might have a slight uh, degree of upward direction of the grievance. You know, uh, students protesting on a campus are beseeching an authority figure, so they're beseeching the administration. But the administration is not really oppressive towards them in the way a, a authoritarian state would be, right? And it tends to cave to their demands really easily. Like there was a hunger strike by a student at the University of Missouri and it lasted maybe three days, maybe two. It was a very short hunger strike. It never got even near the point of being dangerous. Versus you look at hunger strikes in, in history, um, Irish Republican prisoners versus Britain, and they starved to death. And you look at the Gandhi's hunger strikes, he was very well prepared to have people die on his side because he figured the British would not cave until it got really severe. And so... I think because the degree of inequality and the overall degree of conflict severity is lower on these campus settings uh, where people often appeal to victimhood, they don't have the same likelihood of, of, of victimizing themselves or going to those drastic extremes you see where there's political repression uh, in an authoritarian state. Mm -hmm. so I would be extremely surprised if we saw a campus hunger strike go beyond two days or a week, let alone someone set themselves on fire. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and what do the data tell us about the effectiveness of suicide as a political measure? Do it usually lead, does it uh, usually lead to um, uh, effective uh, mobilization of people around the cause of the person that committed suicide, or isn't it usually effective? I don't know if I've done enough quantitative comparison to say if it's usually effective or ineffective. And someone you might want to interview on this is the scholar Michael Biggs. He specializes in political self-immolations and protests. But my sense is that there's been a couple of highly effective examples 
and a lot of ineffective examples. And uh, one of the one of the most famous modern ones, the Buddhist monk Thich uh, Quang Duc, who is not the first person to com commit a political protest suicide, but kicked off the modern era of self-burning and self-immolation as a method. His was a pretty effective. And it, it, from what I've read, it seemed to have an impact on the support of the U.S. for the regime in Vietnam that he was protesting against. And the U.S. public opinion turned against the regime. The president apparently looked at the photo of the man burning himself and said, oh, my God, and we, this is getting severe. And so that probably contributed to the fall of the regime in that case. And we also know the more recent case of Muhammad Bouazizi in Tunisia, the street vendor whose self-immolation started the Arab Spring. So that spiraled drastically out of, of proportion to that individual event. And yet copycat self-immolations in other countries, revolutions, civil wars, very consequential death. On the other hand, I don't know how much impact most of these Tibetans who burned themselves have had. Um, I haven't, you know, and again, I don't study the impact per se to the same extent a political scientist would, but I don't know how much influence it's had on any, any Chinese policy or any pressure on China. And um, I can think of other examples like Korean students in the 90s burning themselves in pro-democracy protests, they almost seemed to be egging on a process that was going on anyway, because there were various liberalizations of democratic reforms happening as they were doing this. So it's hard to make a blanket statement about how effective it is. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And in some cases, it's actually counterproductive. I don't know if you remember, you ever heard of the Fulan Gong cult, or religious group? Yes, yes, I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, they, they had a brief campaign of, of uh, protest suicides within China. And my understanding is your typical Chinese person looked at the government repressions initially as why is the government bothering with these people? It's like a, a tiger chasing a mouse. And then after the protest suicides, the, the self-burnings, I'm like, okay, these people are actually pretty crazy. Maybe it's a good thing the government's cracking down on them. So it could be counterproductive as well. <laughs> Yeah, okay, fair enough. So, and now, what is the relationship between suicide and homicide? Because there are situations where those two acts go together, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, so both can be a kind of social control or a kind of conflict management. People get angry, they... they or upset at something someone else has done, they might kill themselves or they might kill the other person. Reminds me of, I overheard a conversation once about a man in my hometown who shot himself when his wife left and someone said he should have shot her. Like that's the pointing to a reality. Some people do take that second option and, and kill their adversary, assassinate a political leader, kill a, an unfaithful or a spouse who's leaving them. So you often find even the same sorts of conflict can produce these two what seem like opposite outcomes, violence against the self and violence against someone else. So the question from my point of view as a sociologist of conflict is why do you get one or the other or both? And so when I look at social conditions in my work that encourage suicide, 
And one way I've tried to extend my work is saying the opposite of those conditions lead to homicide. And it's an intermediate level. You get the combination of the two. Say, typical example, jealous man kills his estranged wife than himself. That's a very common scenario of homicide and suicide combined. And so, for example, one of the factors I think encourages suicide is the closeness of the adversaries. Closer conflicts, all else equal, seem more prone to this. Uh, people have conflicts of intimates, they're more likely to turn to self-destruction as a way of you know, appealing to them or getting vengeance upon them or making them feel bad versus a conflict with a stranger or somebody. And if you look at the homicide literature, you see the opposite pattern. Conflicts with strangers or distant acquaintances are overrepresented in homicides. And even though people do kill intimates with some frequency because we have lots of intimate conflicts, it's relative to the rate of intimate conflict, intimate homicide is, is less frequent than stranger or acquaintance homicide. And there's other examples of this in the literature on violence and social control of more severe, violent, punitive reactions against people who are strangers or who lack a close tie. And so my idea is that you have a scale here, and as conflicts get more distant, probability of suicide drops, probability of homicide increases, and somewhere in an intermediate range you get a great probability of both, homicide, suicide. So, for example, a lot of suicide, homicide, and homicide, suicide occur in intimate partner conflicts, like spousal conflicts. But not all intimate partners are equally intimate, not all spouses are as close. And so one thing I've looked at in my research is I had a sample of domestic homicides and I compared the length of the relationships in cases that were just homicide to cases in which the killer killed himself as well. And they were much longer relationships when suicide was involved. They were, you know, 10 years, 15 years, much, much more long-term relationships versus the cases with just homicide tended to be an average of like four or five years. So it seems like the closer the couple grows, the more likely it is that you'll get suicide involved rather than homicide alone. That's just one example of how I try to explain the relationship between the two. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and now another set of suicidal acts that also have political ends, that is suicide terrorist attacks. And I think it is very important to talk about these and to refer to them because they are really relevant in today's, partic particularly in the West, in today's political atmosphere, right? So, what are the particularities of suicide terrorist attacks in terms of the aims the, uh, the people who commit them want to achieve? And also, what are the sociological conditions that lead people to commit these kinds of acts? And it can be uh, economic conditions, social conditions, political conditions, or personal? What, what do you have to say about it? Sure. Well, the first question was, what are the aims? Mm -hmm. uh, in suicide attacks, suicide terrorism, and in a lot of terrorism more broadly, excuse me, the aim is often, well, historically it's been territorial. There's some sort of homeland, the, the 
terrorist group wants somebody to leave alone or give more autonomy or be pushed out of. Post-Iraq invasion, there's also been a growth of transnational terrorism that's harder to pin down in terms of a territorial motive. It's tied up with uh, the ideology of, of Salafi uh, jihadism. And so it's more uh, of a general you know, anti-infidel, pro-bringing about the great war kind of thing. This is like the ideology of ISIS. And so that's a little bit less tied to the traditional we're defending our homeland kind of aims that you see in something like, I don't know, the Tamil Tigers, the Irish Republican Army, or uh, Palestinian terrorism, that kind of thing. So those seem to be the two, two very big classes of grievances, some sort of uh, political repression as the terrorists see it, or defense of the homeland as they see it. Plus you've got more nebulous religious motives with some modern contemporary terrorism or ideological motives. As for the conditions that lead to it, Donald Black, among others, has tried to tackle this. He's the sociologist who invented a lot of the concepts I use in my own work. And one of his ideas is that conflicts generate terrorism when there's a high degree, very high degree of social distance. Like, not only are people attacking strangers, they're attacking foreigners with different ethnicity, religion, all these various differences. And they also tend to arise upwardly. So it's, it's, terrorism's a weapon of the weak. It's not used by people against an army or an enemy they could win a stand-up fight with. If you do that, you have your own army and you go beat them, right? Instead, like, you do these sneak attacks on civilians or these other covert attacks when you're facing a stronger enemy. And that fits a lot of the cases we've seen in modern history of terrorism. And it also fits a lot of cases of suicide terrorism. If you look at the literature on suicide terrorism, you see people emphasizing some of these same factors. It's a weapon of the weak. It's Some people say the suicide bomber is the poor man's uh, smart bomb or guided ar artillery. The idea is it can deliver the weapon as effectively as a high-tech you know, computer-controlled smart bomb could, but they can't afford or develop that, so they use a person. There's also uh, an emphasis by a lot of scholars on religious differences generating this as one type of cultural defense. It's very important. And a lot of the cases we see in, in contemporary times cross religious lines, whether it's uh, like Sunni versus Shiite or more broadly, you know, Muslim versus non-Muslim or uh, Hindu and Buddhist, these kinds of religious differences seem to make it more likely. Some other factors involved in suicide terrorism specifically, you need a, a degree of organization for it to happen. Terrorist groups are groups, first of all, and they often have a pretty, I don't want to say advanced, but compared to, say, a disorderly mob or something, you know, we can think of groups that are much less organized, like a rioters. They have a fairly high degree of organization compared to that. There's a division of labor, a leadership, if you look at Palestinian suicide bombing campaigns, they have all kinds of specialized roles. There's your bomb maker, there's your recruiter who finds the bombers as the bomber himself, there's the handlers who train the bomber and get them to the target, there's intelligence people and stuff like that. So it requires at least some degree of organization to put into place. 
And that seems to facilitate it. it having an organization that people can volunteer to serve and die on behalf of seems to facilitate the suicide attack. On the, on the other hand, if they were as organized as, say, uh, an army, they wouldn't be doing that probably. They'd probably be using conventional guerrilla warfare. That's a couple of the conditions that breed it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And wouldn't you say that people in general, the politicians, but also common civilians, uh, react in an exaggerated way to suicide terrorist attacks or even terrorist attacks in general? Because it seems to me that the real effects that those attacks have um, don't, re don't really justify the exaggerated reactions that many people have and even the ways many politicians uh, pre uh, present as being solutions to prevent uh, suicide uh, terrorist attacks in general, but suicide terrorist attacks in particular, right? Uh, what do you have in mind? By... Uh, so what I mean is that, for example, it, it seems to me that, the to, to be very specific, the damage that suicide terrorist attacks cause, uh, cause uh, where they are perpetrated, it seems to me that if people were to evaluate that objectively, that they wouldn't react as they do usually when they get in contact with a terrorist attack on the news or something like that, because it seems to me that that it fosters um, political polarization <clears throat> around these events. Okay. Yeah, well, if you actually look, especially like within Western countries, it's maybe a different story in Iraq or Afghanistan, but mm -hmm. within the West, yeah, we, we obviously we've had some destructive attacks like the 9-11 the and the 7-7 and stuff like that. But, yeah, it's kind of amazing how incompetent the terrorists are. I mean, one of the things you, you often see is just these plans that get foiled fairly easily, or you hear these cases of like the suicide bombers who do a group hug before they go out on their bombing mission and accidentally detonate their bombs and kill themselves in, at home base. And we do know from say, survey data in the U.S., maybe other places too, that people drastically overestimate their odds of dying in a suicide attack or the frequency with which they occur or the casualties that happen. So in that sense, yeah, people do overestimate the danger to themselves. And you can always argue that, well, it's because we are paranoid about it that we foil so many attacks and that there's fewer ones happening, and so maybe... To some extent, the paranoia is, is, has been constructive. In my opinion, I think it's overdone. Um, you know, if, if I mean, an intelligent person who wanted to think about an evil thing to do could probably think of a lot of effective ways to terrorize people that just aren't being done. The terrorists just don't seem capable of doing it. I'm not even going to say them out loud because I don't want to encourage anybody, but. Yeah, I, I think the reaction, it's a very human reaction. We, we, I think it's a human bias. We tend to fear an enemy more than, you know, colon cancer or whatever else is likely to kill us. 
being being attacked by strangers is scary. Uh, my my heart condition I probably inherited from my grandfather. That's just background noise to me, even though that's the thing that's likely to kill me. But it, from a strictly rational perspective, yeah, we worry more about the wrong things and the things that are likely to kill us. <laughs> yeah, yes, I guess that's what I was talking about, about the overestimation of the probability of something like that killing us, in this case, a suicide terrorist attack, for example. So, mm -hmm. okay, just before we finish, I would like to talk with you a little bit about uh, some ideas that come from, in this case, evolutionary psychology, because I've been having quite a lot of evolutionary psychologists on the show, and I've, I've had contact with a very interesting idea that comes from evolutionary psychology about how suicide might have evolved, even if not as an adaptation, at least as an heuristic, let's say. So. Okay. And I would like to know what you think, and if you think that this could be, uh, this could be integrated with your work and the work of others in sociology. That is, there are people, and I read this fr uh, from the work coming from Todd Shackelford and in the book uh, that was evolution, the evolution of morality, mm -hmm. where he says that, uh, or he proposes the hypothesis that suicide would work as an heuristic for people to, uh, that is, people keep track of their social value and they evaluate how people deal with them and where they are placed in the social hierarchy. And particularly when it comes to kin selection, they have mechanisms to evaluate if they really are of value to their family, if they have reproductive and economic value or not. And, uh, and he proposes the idea that uh, if people, if a certain person reach the conclusion by observing all of her or his environment that she didn't really have a good reproductive or economic value and uh, that she might even be using uh, too much of the resources of the people around her, that that would lead the person to commit suicide uh, rationally, because the people, uh, the person would think that those resources could be applied uh, uh, or be used to to help other people that could, uh, could put them to better use. Let's say so. Do you think that because? Uh, these hypotheses takes into account the person monitoring uh, his or her position and value in the society slash family she is part of that this could be integrated with the work you've been doing in on suicide. Well, the work I'm doing is focused on situational variation. So I don't really get into you know, the roots of the instincts that lead to that. Although I'm not one of these sociologists who's hostile to biology for some strange reason. I assume if anything I say is correct, it's because, because there are instincts out there that lead to these patterns. So, you know, if, if my theory is correct, it should be compatible with whatever the correct biological explanation is. And so, yeah, I think my ideas are compatible with those. If those would explain the tendency to have this sorts of situational variation I talk about. 
I will say regarding that particular theory, it almost seems overly specific to me in the sense that I would, I would think uh, you wouldn't have, have an evolutionary theory of, of an instinct for suicide per se. It'd probably be more like just a, a theory of the drives that might lead to it. So if some people kill themselves out of altruism, well, we can explain altruism. Kin selection theory is very good at that. So I'm told anyway. And that would explain why people you know, who commit altruistic suicide tend to do it on behalf of family or tight-knit community. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say there's like a mechanism specifically for calculating suicide in the brain. I would just say there's an urge to be altruistic towards your family and, and, and a human animal that can process all this information and invent new ways of doing things. Somebody thinks of, oh, suicide is a way to be altruistic. Uh, same thing for a lot of the other drives I think might lead to it. I mean, uh, you mentioned social standing and, and social position. Clearly losing social position hurts people. I mean, it upsets them greatly. And I think there's a very good evolutionary reason for that. It's probably in our past that was a very big key to reproductive success. Probably still is to some extent. So that would explain why it's a painful thing. Although I don't think you need to invoke uh, a special theory to say why people kill themselves to escape the painful thing. Uh, same reason they kill themselves to escape, you know, cancer or captured by an enemy in battle or whatever. It's a way they know they can escape pain. But, yeah, why do they feel pain at losing social position? Well, probably <laughs> revolutionary reasons, yes. <laughs> That's my thinking off the cuff. <laughs> Yes, you, you referred to the fact that it probably wouldn't be, as people say in evolutionary biology and psychology, an adaptation, that is, it wouldn't be something that was directly the product of the problems people had to solve in their evolutionary history. But, uh, as I said, the, the author in this case also doesn't propose that. He only says that suicide would work I called it an heuristic, but probably, okay. but probably is more a byproduct of the, of several different cognitive modules, ones that process social information and things like that, perhaps different cues and signs coming from other people, and that all that information together would lead the person to decide that perhaps the best option for her in that case would be to commit suicide, pr pr probably in order to favor uh, people who are part of the of the same kin. Let's say. Sure, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> okay, okay. So, Doctor Manning, just before we finish this year, would you like perhaps to share with people where they can follow your work on the internet? Sure, I am on Twitter at Social Geometer. I also have a blog, www.socialgeometer.com, where I talk about issues related to sociological theory and sociological explanation and some of my other interests. I have a whole series I'm thinking of doing on, on sociology of violence. So I, it's for sociology geeks, but it's an outlet for that. And my co-author, Bradley Campbell, who together we wrote a book, Rise of Victimhood Culture, available on Amazon. We also have a blog called The Victimhood Report at victimhoodculture.com where we talk about moral cultures and patterns of morality and conflict 
particularly on today's college campuses as well as elsewhere. Okay, very interesting. I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box to this video. And Dr. Manning, it was really a pleasure to meet you and to talk with you. I think it was a really fruitful conversation. So thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you for having me, Ricardo. It was a good interview. Hi guys, thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.